Possibilities Cafe is a show dedicated to women seeking understanding of who they are today. The host, Karen Barno, interviews high-powered, successful women in business. Together, they discuss the paths they took on their journey along with their stories of struggles, redemptions, and lessons learned. What ignited them to keep going to find their blue rose? Karen Barno is an author of Blue Rose Bookstore, A Journey of Healing, a founder and CEO of a successful corporation, entrepreneur, and international motivational speaker who interviews amazing women to learn their tips and stories of success. These women believe that everything is overcomable. Today's episode is sponsored by Transform Your Life in Seven Days. This ebook is a roadmap to help women find their way back to their true selves, to remove the negatives that are holding them in place, eliminate the shadows keeping them stuck, and know who you are and exactly what she wants to express out into the world unapologetically. Check it out at karenbarno.com under workbooks. Hello, today my guest is Janet Day with Arizona Policy Connect. She represents a variety of clients and she's over two decades has been a successful government relations practice. She started over 15 years ago at one of Arizona's largest and oldest law firms. She was a director at Fenimore Craig where she served as the firm's government relations practice chair. Janet then transitioned to serve as the Phoenix office for Brownstein, Hyatt, Barber and Shrek. They had a newly arrived Denver-based company. They stayed about five years and after that, Janet decided, you know what, why don't I go to work for myself? Janet is the owner and principal of Arizona Policy Connect. She is a one-woman powerhouse. She has taken her business from zero to, to seven figures. And women, I want you to hear that, working alone. She got the hustle. She got the, the clients. I mean, she's got great clients, Southwest, Anheuser-Busch, Pacific Railroad. So I think that if she ever wants to go on a trip, she can take some beer, fly to the East Coast, and then take the choo-choo train back. Welcome, Jana Day, as my guest. Hello, Jana. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're able to make time for this. I know you're very busy, although you're out of session right now, correct? Correct. Yeah, the legislature's been done for a couple months now, but unfortunately, I'm finding that I never thought I would say this, but I'm wishing for the structure and predictability that the legislation that the legislative session had. So agendas and hearings. And right now we kind of find ourselves in a situation where everything it's kind of the whack-a-mole analogy where everything is happening by executive order through the governor's actions. And, you know, there's no opportunity for input before or, or really after. And Oh, the legislature, I think, is feeling some of that same frustration of, of sitting on the sidelines watching. Um, but it, it's definitely a, a, been a really different environment to lobby in. I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, I saw a meme posted by a, a person who said, I'm a spy. How can I practice uh, work from home? Right. And I feel like that that applies to lobbyists as well, like how I gather information, I you know, talk to people and I, uh, that's, it's very difficult to work in an isolated environment. Um, cause normally we gather information if we run in, if we're at a fundraiser or a reception and, you know, I'll see five or 10 people that I need to talk to about X or Y, and they don't have to be giant conversations, but they're kind of just a touch base or you pick up little tidbits. And, uh, I'm finding that that is challenging 
that we don't have all that information right now. But, you know, I'm not really the kind who likes to call up someone and just say, what's new? What are you hearing? What's the latest? Like, um, I know some people do operate like that, but especially, you know, when they're busy government officials too, that it feels like if I want to bother them for something, you know, I want to make good use of their time and not just say, Hey, let's, let's gossip or, you know, hear what the latest is. So it's definitely been a challenge to sort of adapt, but all in all, can't complain. Well, the good thing is, is nobody's on vacation. So you don't have to worry about waiting for somebody to get back from vacation. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) Which is crazy right now. That excuse is gone. Well, and as you know, in Arizona, uh, you know, stuff we're used to things kind of slowing down in July and August as people do vacation or just try to get out of the heat. But yeah, this has been this has been a, a July for the record books. That's for sure. And and I know and you know, well, I can't remember. I told my husband, when was the last time that I was in state on the 4th of July? So that I was true. actually not at an ocean and you you as well, because you guys usually take big vacations over the summer. All of a sudden, everybody was here. Right. It was such a new experience. It was like, so this is 4th of July in Arizona. <laughs> exactly. So it's crazy. So, Jana, as you know, the theme of this podcast is everything is overcomable. So I need to ask you, have you ever come, overcome anything lately? Uh, of course. Um, let me just step back a bit to some previous challenges, if I could, uh, just to kind of set the stage. And then we'll sort of uh, Zoom no pun intended, fast forward to um, some more more recent issues. So just to give you a little insight into my career, um, I grew up here in Arizona and um, I was the youngest of seven. I had a number of uh, three brothers who were attorneys and my sisters had all graduated with undergraduate degrees. So I found myself when I was about to wrap up my undergraduate degree in poli-sci, uh, figuring out what next steps were going to be. And I sort of took stock of, of who I knew in my professional circles. And I grew up in a small town and, and culturally women, the women that I knew in my circles um, were pretty much confined to sort of traditional roles. You know, if they did work outside the home, they had school teacher, nurse, secretary kinds, kinds of positions. And The more I started thinking about women in in my circle as far as education, um, I couldn't come up with anyone in my list of, you know, actual people that I know, teachers, relatives, all of that, that that had an advanced degree in anything other than education and or nursing. And I just thought that didn't that didn't seem right. Um, I wasn't happy with, with that, with that stock that I had taken. And um, at the same time, I was working at uh, my brothers, my two brothers, had, three brothers had a law practice. And so I was spending the summer over college, during college, working in their law practice. And my dad actually had a real estate office growing up too. So I had, you know, worked as a secretary receptionist for him for a few years off and on. And so I was skilled in all the office skills, right? Receptionist, phone, typing, all of that. And so I enjoyed working with my brothers, but I was, you know, exploring all these educational options and sort of next steps. And I remember very clearly sitting in my brother's office 
Uh, you know, he's giving me a list of things to do. We were in his, his actual office. So he was across the desk and I was sitting there taking notes on whatever he was asking me to do. And I just remember thinking, why would I want to just stay on this side of the desk and make whatever I was making, um, which at the time was a good wage comparatively, right, for no degree and all of that. But I knew I could be making, you know, 10 times more if I was sitting on his side of the desk, um, hourly wage, you know, head to head. So that really stuck with me. And I decided to take the LSAT and, and to go to law school. Um, actually, my husband had already taken the LSAT and was applying to law school. So we actually went to law school at the same time, which ended up being uh, weirdly competitively fun. We we kind of uh, made it into a bit more of a game and, you know, all of our studying and, you know, late nights at the library. I think we had a bit of an advantage because most of our classmates had competing concerns, right? They either had, if they were single, they wanted to be out socializing or doing other things. And if they were uh, married, then they had family considerations at home. And so they always had that push pull of how much time they were spending studying. And for us, it didn't matter because, you know, we were together the whole time regardless. And so we had a lot of fun with that. So out of law school, I came to Phoenix. We both, we moved back to Phoenix, moved to Phoenix and uh, we both went to work for kind of big law firms here in Arizona. And um, I don't begrudge those years at all um, because they helped, as Karen said, I got exposure to the clients. Many of the same clients that I have today, uh, I sort of inherited from uh, that time at the law firm and, and began working on those client relationships way back then, almost 25 years ago. Um, but I will say now to get a long-winded way to get back to your question, of answering the question about challenges. I mean, there definitely were challenges in the big law firm structure that I specifically faced as a woman that I wasn't necessarily even aware of at the time, right? I, I think I always kind of had a head down and the more that I tried to highlight my differences as a woman, I felt that that wasn't necessarily productive. I remember like even in law school, just thinking, oh, why do people have to have a women law students association? Like, why aren't they just law students, right? I feel like sometimes highlighting our differences or continuing to hang on to those associations sends a counterproductive message. So that had kind of been my uh, MO for a while and kind of what I thought. But then I started to experience in the law firm setting some of the challenges that came with being in a, in a male-dominated profession. And especially, we had a fairly, fairly consistent number of uh, male-to-female ratio among the younger attorneys my age. But at the leadership levels, you know, it was very much dominated by older white men, basically. Um, and including my mentor, who had a very strong personality and had been there forever and had a lot of, of swack. But it was kind of one of those situations where in many ways, you know, I, I learned so many great things from him that I think the saying of, you know, the, these were the best of times, but they, they were also the worst of times, right? There were elements of it that I don't think I appreciated how bad they were until looking back. And I'm talking about 
more things that were business challenges to me and or economic disadvantages. Um, I never really worried much about, you know, other types of discrimination or I was always a joker back or, you know, I would dish stuff back out if I, in terms of teasing and that kind of stuff. So when I say that I faced challenges, I think it was more in the context of uh, financially that I didn't learn until many, many years in how to effectively advocate for myself, right? It's kind of ironic that my role is advocacy, right? I advocate on behalf of of the clients that Karen named and and others. Um, That's what I do, but yet I didn't apply those same principles early enough for myself looking back. Um, And this, you know, really had to do with, there's a lot of subjectivity in the partnership track at a big law firm. It, It should run in like, the seven to eight years range, and, and I was on that normal time frame, and I did, you know, make partner on the the expected time frame, and all that was going smoothly. But at the same time, I was I was also bumping up against the ceiling of my mentor, who, on the one hand, you know, wanted me to have these skills and and grow and develop, but at the same time, I think his self interest prevented me from making games. Uh, I have two competitors, basically colleagues in my industry who are, were roughly the same age females who had circumstances where both of their, they lost their senior male mentors um, much earlier in their career. And I was always a bit envious that I felt like that freed them up to rise to the occasion um, sooner, where, whereas I face challenges in trying to navigate how can I grow and develop with my mentor basically trying to keep me down, if that makes sense. It, it um, does. If, I, if I can just sure. jump in there once, because I think there's a lot of women right now shaking their heads because we all have bumped up into that, you know, the white male who's running the show and we have to try to move around them being gentle, because if we don't move properly, then we end up back to square one. Right. And, you know, you're kind of dancing a little bit around the issue of how hard it was. Correct. Absolutely. It was very challenging. And as as Karen said in the intro, eventually I did end up leaving that big firm and I started a Phoenix office of a a satellite office of a a Denver-based firm. And basically just transferred myself into a whole new set of of similar challenges. So the mentor actually came with me and, and we had to navigate, you know, a whole new world. Whereas I had been at the previous firm for 15 years and I knew the personalities and that kind of thing, you know, I was thrust into remotely kind of having to to navigate a whole new set of leadership. And um, I think I was naive looking back. I was definitely naive in that process because it, it basically came out, I, I was the managing partner of the office, and um, to make a long story short, I guess my, my mentor, I found out like two years later that they were, the new firm was continuing to pay my mentor uh, almost twice what they were paying me, and 
you know, that had not been consistent with our conversation coming over because at that point it was a matter of who controlled, you know, the, who was responsible for the, the book of business for the, the clients and the income stream associated with that. And, you know, my mentor had started traveling and he was out of the office, you know, for weeks at a time. And I, I felt that I was in the position of the um, primary contact for the clients, yet he was still getting the credit for them. And so that was a really challenging situation and frustration when I found out that that was the case. So and I, let's care. I oh, think, we'll jump in again. I think uh, what happens to a lot of women as well is we have these mentors, typically men, but they I mean, occasionally it can be an older woman as well, but typically male mentors. And we are so grateful for them mentoring us and for showing us the path that what a lot of women miss is they would not have got where they got without us. And the powerful women don't realize that because the male mentor kind of, you know, you know, you're here because of me when in reality, he's where he was because of you. Exactly. And I think women need to kind of look at their mentors and think, okay, who's, who's really supporting who here? And is he bringing enough to the table? And you're right that it's a delicate balance of, you know, you don't want to upset the apple cart by declaring that, you know, you're the end all and that he'd be nothing without you, et cetera, because that would be counterproductive. But, but finding ways to, um, you know, maybe even more proactively ask clients to, to make their opinions known or to document how, if they have an issue, I'm the one they call, right? I'm the one who's equipped to to help them. Um, and I, I think I didn't realize early enough that that needed to happen. Um, but at the end of the day, as Karen said, you know, ultimately that law firm decided to close their their doors here in Arizona. And it, at the first, that was, you know, incredibly shocking, jarring news. Here was the managing partner, and how did, how did I not even you know know that this was in the works? I I was blindsided, and I had to go and you know oversee telling all the employees, shutting down the office. Um, it was very frustrating to me professionally and personally. Um, but at the end of the day, it was really the kick in the pants that I needed. Um, I I really, if we were talking about economic interests, I would have been better off leaving the original law firm. 10, 15 years ago, um, once I got to that point of feeling like I was the primary client responsibility um, or representative of a client, that I should have rocked the boat back then. I mean, as a practical matter, real life, you know, I had I had four kids while I was at the law firm. I mean, I'm not ungrateful by any stretch for you know, a year's worth of maternity leave that, that I had there, that it was a welcoming environment, you know, for flexibility. And also my, my just my career choice, lobbying uh, is a pretty flexible type um, work arrangement because during the legislative session, what Karen referenced at the beginning from January to June, it's kind of like tax season where it can be really fast and furious but then for the rest of the year, vacations and, and over the summer, it worked well with my kids when they were little and out of school in the summers and that kind of thing. So, uh, 
maybe in retrospect, those are excuses. Uh, but you know, I, I was focused on all of those aspects of my life as well. And so I think it was easy to just kind of keep my head down and plowing forward and not really take stock of the financial. I was trading the security of not having to take the risks and deal with all of that, um, you know, by being in the, the bigger firm. But but I was also leaving so much on the table. When you look at what big law firms eat up in overhead, like, you know, fancy offices with great views and yeah, that's, it was nice to look at, but in retrospect, now that, that I'm, I'm controlling the entire pot of my client receipts myself, as opposed to be giving a fraction of being given a fraction of those back, um, I'd much rather have it and hold it and spend it than look at it as far as a fancy office view. Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, the universe, if you're not where you're supposed to be, the universe will get you there. You know, you didn't leave the first time. You moved to that second situation and you weren't happy. And the universe is like, okay, is she going to do anything, do anything? And you're like, you're not going to do anything. So they're like, okay, we're going to blow up the law firm. Right. We're going to force your hand to make the decision. So the universe will always put you where you need to be. Sometimes it just gets messy and ugly because we missed the, the nice first thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely first. true. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. I would say other challenges that, that are more recent. Um, I mean, obviously, I think we've all faced challenges in, in the current work environment, and I referenced those a bit at the beginning. But uh, one of the challenges with dealing with, with lobbying and advocacy is, you know, a style issue on kind, kind of going back to my, my mentor issue, I really had two mentors there at the beginning and they were, they were polar opposites. One was, you know, super suave and Italian and schmoozy. And the other was um, super aggressive, gruff. And they both had very successful lobbying practices, but they couldn't have been more, more different. And it was interesting to learn from both of their styles. And I think, um, you know, it's the whole issue of, do you get more, are you more likely to get your way if you're asking an elected official for something using honey or vinegar, right? I mean, that's, um, and so I think it was good to be able to learn from both of them. I think that that's reflective of my style, that I'm, I'm generally um, nice. <laughs> I'm pleasant in my asking. I try not to irritate people. Um but at the same well, time, well, right. I, I, okay, wait, I, I got to stop here because I, because Jan and I know each other through work as well. And we were sitting in an office and I won't give a lot of details besides the fact that I don't even think I remember who it was, but she, in essence, bitch slapped the legislator smiling the whole time. And he, the look on his face was, oh my God, she's smiling. <laughs> I, we walked out. I said, you really let him know. And she's like, but I was so nice. <laughs> <laughs> With a smile always. Exactly. So, you know, when she sits here and says, oh, she's nice. She is very nice. One of the nicest people I've ever met, to be sure. But she knows when to throw down. So women, she's not saying, let's just be a doormat or I didn't want to be gruff. You've got to find a balance of what works for you. Just like the first time I lost my temper with you, not with you, but we were in a meeting and she just reached over and touched my hand. 
And on her way out, she was like, you'll never do that again. (laughs) I've never done it again. It was like, okay, I get it. So you need to find what works for you. Correct. No doormats here. (laughs) Right. No, and I think that one of the lessons that that I have learned from lobbying is the the idea that you have to live to fight another day, right? Mm -hmm. That we may be in that meeting, a contentious kind of meeting that Karen's talking about one day with that legislator when I really, you know, had to get serious and, and borderline ugly on letting them know the impact of their proposal or whatever it is on, on my client's uh, business. Um, but you have to figure out, you have to know that I might be in there the next day with that same legislator asking for something that would benefit another client and kind of like fresh slate, right? So I think knowing how to not blow all your chits on one issue and knowing that you are going to have to have an ongoing relationship with this person. And I do think that those, some of those tidbits, um, those skills that I've developed have been helpful on the personal front as well with, you know, home and children and, and spouse and, and just realizing that this one issue or disagreement on a topic about homework or anything like that is, it's not worth breaking your pick over because um, you're going to have to live under the same roof with this person the next day and, you know, navigate those issues too. Well, and, and you've always been a very confident woman. I mean, I, I don't know how long, I think I've known you for about 10 years now, so not forever. Although we do have to touch on ever so briefly. When did you start dating your husband? <laughs> this one is a good, this one is a good bar topic. Cause when people ask how we met, we actually stood next to each other in our kindergarten picture. It's Isn't it, you guys in my office. so sweet. They're still <laughs> so happy. I mean, they're still happy. It's just, now to be fair, we didn't, when people ask then, you know, well, did we date in high school? And then my husband always says, well, she did. <laughs> 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 so we didn't date each other. I did ask him to one girl's choice dance as uh, sophomores. It was uh, Hula Hawkins, like, hey, you know, like Sadie Hawkins, but the Aloha theme. So <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> otherwise we didn't start dating until college. Oh, so. I thought you dated the whole way through. I still think that's romantic. So where, but where did your self-confidence, because you did grow up in it. When she says small town, she means small, small. I'm not even sure it's on the map. It is, but. I mean, yeah, we had 91 in our graduating class. So it was pretty, pretty small town. Um, and yet you managed to find guys to date out of those 91. <laughs> <laughs> Cream of the crop, that's for sure. <laughs> um. I think I learned a lot from, from my mom. Um, so I was the youngest of seven kids and I, I watched, I think actually my husband was the seventh in his family as well. And so I think we talk about this a lot, how it afforded us the opportunity to watch our siblings make mistakes. You know, they were adults by then, by the time we really had many memories, you know, they were already off to college 15 years spread. And so I think watching just a lot of things about how their educational choices, you know, their income earning potential, their, um, I'm trying to think what, which I left off, um, their choice of spouses, right? Those ended up really influencing their lives. So I think part of like when we decided that I was going to go to law school too, 
um, we were really, I mean, my husband's extended family, his, his sisters, he had three brothers and, and four sisters, and they all had a really rough go with, you know, failed marriages. And I feel like one thing that's been really helpful in, in our own relationship has been the economic um, independence. And I've, I've seen a lot of other situations where, you know, some of my own sisters, et cetera, if, if they don't have the ability, even if they're choosing not to work right now, you know, if they don't have the ability to go out and do something that is economically viable, um, I think that takes a toll on a relationship and it creates that, you know, disjointed um, balance of power that, that I think it really really can be devastating in a lot of situations. I'm not saying that people can't navigate around it for sure, but I didn't want to be in that path. And I also had the benefit of having watched my mother who, you know, raised seven kids and put them all through college and, and did all of that. But at the same time, because I was the youngest, when I left for college, my mom had a really, um, I would say depressive episode basically where, you know, she'd spent her entire existence doing children and, and family, and and she really had a kind of identity crisis. And I felt not responsible, but just closer to it because I was the last one to leave. And so it was really hard watching her um, have no sense of independent self outside her status as a mother, basically wife and mother. And so um, my dad was actually in the legislature, which was four hours away. And so they would travel back and forth. So there were some extenuating circumstances there where she couldn't really even get involved in some of the things that she had done previously. She was a school teacher for a few years before she had kids, that kind of thing, because of his schedule, she couldn't really even volunteer at a school or do any of those things. So long, long way to answer, I think I really came away with the resolve that I wanted to have and develop some outside interests that not only would be economically sustainable, but I could sustain myself, that um, I would be, I could avoid that dip in identity crisis. So I don't know, some may say I swung too far the other way. We all have those moments where, you know, we talk about the, work-life balance and they, you know, you can always have, uh, not regrets, but second guess how you spent your time or, you know, look at the impact of where your kids are now and say, what would have happened if I had done X or Y, right? But really, I think that's where my drive to succeed came from because I was very shaped by uh, having watched my mother go, go through that. Yeah, and, that, and that's interesting because everything always comes from our past. I mean, we either overcome it or we don't, but everything comes from the past. So it was interesting following your train of thought going mentor to mentor when really that was all set up by your mother, making you a strong person and making sure. basically who you are. But, you know, I think a lot of people forget that. So they think of all this stuff when really just a foundation you. Right you know, as a youngest and seven. And as a woman in a, in a small town that women may not have been celebrated like they are today. Correct. Back then. So you had a lot of 
different roads to traverse through, and yet you still are amazingly self-confident. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're amazing. You're very confident, you know, and, and, and like I said, I knew you back when you were with a couple of the other firms. So, you know, yeah, confidence comes when you own your own business and you're being successful, but you're not going to own your own business and be successful if you're not confident. So true. Because people smell blood in the water. Right. No, and it's nice. And it's nice to hear you say that because I mean, I'm sure we all do, do suffer from, you know, self-doubt occasionally and, you know, wondering if we're doing things right or, or lacking a bit in self-confidence. But I do think it's very important to project confidence and success. It's just that whole, you know, old saying or whatever it is that, you know, success begets success. I mean, you, you take one little nut and grow it into something bigger, right? And it, and it helps snowball and you need to have the confidence to help make that happen. And always carry that little nut with you. I mean, I always keep little remembrances behind me. So when you get to that thing where you're like, man, I am so nervous about, you know, going to Governor Ducey's office or doing something like that. And you think, okay, well, I've been to these offices and, you know, what's the big deal? So you always have that reference point to say, I got this. Right. No, I've been cleaning out files during this this time and just trying to get things, um, you know, when I moved in to my current office, it was under a rush as it usually is and you don't take time to go through everything but it it has been interesting just to see those old files and I mean even even just to the physical structure of the file being so different like the the old law firm world of, of like you know legal size folders and and just like ancient history I mean there were some like typed you know I found some like typed documents I mean <laughs> I always remember um one of the challenges I faced as a young attorney was delegating and we we laugh about the mentor situation and, and I always say that um he was relatively difficult to work with and I I was like one of the few who like stuck it out and he ran off a lot of other people who offended him or whatever and so I always blame him on my inability to delegate because I never had the chance to delegate to anybody because he, he was so bad. He ran off all the underlings. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. I don't want to take too much more of your time. I think I took already a lot of your time. So thank you very much for being here. I appreciate your time, Jana. I hope you guys learned so many lessons it's not easy running a successful business, but it can be done if you have if you have confidence in yourself, if you have courage, and you advocate for yourself. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna advocate for you. Either you you sing your own songs of praise because if you're waiting for somebody else to do it, it's probably not gonna happen. Thanks a lot. Talk to you guys later.